Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I'm very excited. We have two guests today helping us celebrate Spiritual Care Week, which is October 20th to 26th of this year. Our first guest is Reverend Dr. Carla Cheatham, who said, please call me Carla. And our second guest is Katrina Scott, a recently retired spiritual provider. Ladies, welcome. Thank you. Glad to hear your voice, Lynn. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about Spiritual Care Week. So what the heck? Maybe a good place to start would be what the heck is spirituality and is this the same thing as religion? What do you think? Uh, <laughs> well, this is Carla. I'll, I'll jump in and begin with that one because this uh, topic's near and dear to my heart. A lot of folks misunderstand the role of spiritual care counselors or spiritual care providers. So One of the reasons we're grateful for this week is because we can highlight what it is we do and what we don't do. Many people hear spiritual care or they hear a chaplain, which is what we've commonly been called, and they assume that we're going to come in and try to impose some sort of belief on them, judge them, try to get them converted. And that is the last thing that a clinically trained ethical healthcare chaplain is supposed to be doing. Uh, We come in and say, what do you believe? And how can we help you access your beliefs to find as much peace, meaning, and comfort as possible? But when we talk about beliefs, we're not meaning just religious beliefs. We have the view that everyone has questions of existence, meaning how do we make sense of suffering? Why are we here? How do we find comfort? Where do we turn for direction? How do we carry on after the time that we die in this world with leaving a legacy? And do we believe in a life after this one? If so, What does that look like? Those are questions of existence. Those existential questions everyone has. Some respond to those questions by turning to nature and the arts and sciences and humanities, the greater good of human consciousness and love. Others answer those questions and find comfort and connection through a spiritual community, a spiritual path. And still others turn to a dedicated religion with practices and rituals of their own and scriptures and texts and songs of their own. So however it is that people answer those existential questions, we want to help them access their beliefs to find, again, peace, meaning, comfort, and direction on their terms without us imposing our views at all. But spiritual care is about that existential um, questions and struggles, and we get to show up and help them find whatever they use to answer those questions to find their own support. Hmm. And how is that different from religion? It differs from religion simply because in religion there is a faith leader of a faith community who is tasked with upholding the doctrines, the views, the standards of that particular religion and promoting in many cases that religion. Not always. There are some religions that are not evangelical, meaning trying to proselytize others to their way of seeing, but others are. In religion, though, there's one dedicated viewpoint. In healthcare and spirituality, there's a lot more openness to different ways of being and seeing. And so a spiritual care provider wants to help people find ways to access things of spirit, something greater than or beyond themselves that may or may not fit into a traditional religious structure. So Katrina, Katrina any other you, thoughts about that? Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, Katrina, do you think we've reached the tipping point where more people are concerned about spirituality than a specific religion? You know, uh, that's a great question. And 
I hate to say this, but it really kind of depends upon where you live in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, the Deep South Bible Belt is a lot different than the Pacific Northwest, uh, especially in practices, uh, values, and how those practices practices and values uh, enter into our daily lives. So um, the Pew Report, which is a great place to look, um, has a lot of information that people over the age of 65, 90% of those people still identify with their spiritual tradition, religion of birth, whether they attend temple or church or or not. Whereas right now, currently, more than half of the people under the age of 30 uh, do not identify with any organized religion, or nor are they looking to do that. So their support system, where churches and temples and uh, houses of belief, brick-and-mortar structures, are now being replaced by, I hate to say it, digital media. I think most people get their support systems through Facebook now. Mm-hmm. And, it's you kind know, of an odd thing. Coming at this as a pharmacist, and certainly my head is not in in your game particularly, but it would seem to me that people with an advanced illness facing death would be more concerned about the big question of, you know, did my life make a difference? Why is this happening to me? That seems to be more of a spirituality question than a religion-focused question. What do you all think about that? There are are three major um, components Uh, or needs of people facing a life-threatening illness, and especially at end of life. And the first one would be Um, meaning-making. You know, the meaning of my life, the meaning of this illness in my life, um, if it's earlier through the trajectory of illness. Uh, The second is the value of me, given this disintegration of, of who I was and where I am now. Uh, a time when people should be loved and cherished versus feeling burdens to their family. And the third part is always that meaning of reconciliation, of uh, reaching out to others and to kind of uh, being at peace, being at peace with God, being at peace with family, uh, feeling that you've tried your best to make amends for things that you possibly regret or have left undone in your life. Wow, big job you guys have. I would think that you would <laughs> encounter a lot of people, for example, the end-stage COPD who smoked all his or her life, and the feelings of guilt that I brought this on myself. Is that something you all uh, confront? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah, we, we experience really kind of the, the range of emotions. There are some who are the most religiously devout, who have struggled the most. And then there are others who are um, not really well connected with spirituality, who have had the most peace. And it kind of runs the gamut and vice versa. People of deep faith who have a deep and abiding peace and who can find a source of forgiveness. And people who, even who are non-theistic, atheists, agnostics, humanists and such, Mm -hmm. who also can find a great deal of peace. It really depends upon how they make meaning, as Katrina was saying, how they make sense of things. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of the, the, the things that we suspect people will experience by the time they come to us in palliative care and then later in the hospice, very often they have wrestled with those things. They've been living with this disease nonstop, not able to get away from yeah. it for weeks and months and sometimes years. 
Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes, by the time they come to us, they may be dealing with more about of grief around um, not wanting to leave the persons that they love, or they may be dealing mm-hmm. with um, with struggles around um, around. There may be some questions about wanting to clean things up, but sometimes we see that by the time they get to us, they've really done a lot of that in hospice. Especially one of the things we see more often than not is not why is God letting me die, but why is God not letting me die? Why am I being allowed to linger and suffer? Why is this being allowed? Why can't I just die? So it really runs the gamut. But the tricky thing is just helping them identify how they make sense of things. At one point in time, I had a person who was atheist, another who uh, practiced a lot of Celtic and native spirituality, but no no defined religion, just a very spiritual path, and some elements of Buddhism as well in his belief system, and another who was a devout evangelical Christian from, uh, from the Worldwide Church of God in Christ. Each of them were struggling with some of the very same things. The person who was an atheist he turned to the sciences and the poetry of Robert Frost and the music of Bob Dylan for meaning and comfort. For the person who was spiritual, he practiced Native American smudgings and he read Celtic prayers and he turned to uh, Buddhism and meditation and letting go of, of uh, desire as a way of, of accepting suffering. And the person who was the evangelical Christian turned to prayers and scriptures and expressions of forgiveness, or expressions asking for forgiveness of sin and seeking pardon for things she felt she had done wrong. So same concerns, same struggles. They just found their own ways of dealing with them and tending to them. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have quite a few tools in your toolbox, I think, to take on all comers. Well, one would think, but I would argue, and I'll be curious to hear Katrina's thoughts, I think the more I've become comfortable at just being present with people as they are, where they are without needing them to be any place different. Mm-hmm. I need to know less about different viewpoints and more about how to just hold open space for them mm-hmm. to sit mm-hmm. and talk long enough with a supportive, caring presence until they can hear themselves and find their own answers. As they find the truth and sense of connection inside of them, I'm just that sounding board and a place to be in fact, when people ask me for answers, I, I won't give them. I reflect back to them and ask them to tell me what they think and believe. And I'm, I'm really more, and as the theme, as you were telling us, Lynn, earlier, is the theme being about holding space. I do a lot more of holding space rather than providing answers or even having a lot of tools in my toolbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Katrina, maybe you could address that. The, the well, theme of this year is cultivating space. What does that mean? Well, Space comes in all forms, right? Um, it comes from the space within our bodies, inside of ourselves, without, um, without away from us as well within us. And I think that given serious illness and end-of-life concerns, um, space seems to quite often uh, not expand but contract, especially given limit, limitations on a person. I think one of the roles that we have as spiritual care providers, a.k.a. chaplains, is to open up that space and to help that person remember, uh, I call it remembered wellness, who they were at the top of their game, what their hopes and dreams 
uh, have been and will continue to be, and to hold. Um, I, I always, I'm sorry, I'm getting flustered here, but I always describe my job as that I am a sponge. My job is to mm. hear the thoughts, dreams, wishes, hopes, fears of a person, to let mm. them know that I have heard their suffering and that I understand that they are suffering, or I've heard their joy and I'm and replenished by being in the presence of that. But it really is basic companioning, and companioning means being in the same space as that person, not above, not below, but with them. Okay. So obviously you are both faculty in our Master of Science program, and you both know that I am pretty fervently um, wish that all people in our program are transdisciplinary to an extent. Mm -hmm. So what would you say is the minimum skill set for anyone in our program in this realm? Um, I would say when faced with a patient saying to you, why is God doing this to me? the number one thing that is most imperative to, uh, baseline is to acknowledge their suffering. If somebody said their foot hurts, you'd ask them where it hurts. Oh, that's really hard. Why is God doing that, this to me? And you have to acknowledge it by saying, oh, that must feel so hard to feel that way. I, I cannot, cannot imagine how hard, difficult that must be for you. Please tell me more. You want to find out what their, their suffering really is, and it, and it could be something that you think it is, but it could be anything. It's, it's mm-hmm. their belief system and their worldview and where it's butting heads with what they are actually experiencing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. acknowledging suffering, a person's spiritual suffering, is number one. You don't want to I would, it. I would definitely agree, and I would add to that, Letting Go of the Need to Fix. Megan Devine is a writer in grief and, and bereavement, and she says some things cannot be fixed. They can only be carried. Mm-hmm. And so we show up to sit beside them. Um, Herbert Adler talked about uh, compassionate listening as being analogous to hemodialysis in that as the person speaks their suffering and it's received by the compassionate listener, by the time it passes through, as he says, and I love this term, the compassionate equanimity of the caring listener, and by the time it then comes back to the speaker, it's been dialyzed of just a bit of its pain. So oh, you were talking earlier. Yeah, so you were talking mm-hmm. earlier about the tools in the toolbox. I would say as we are acknowledging that suffering and holding that space and affirming them, as Katrina was talking about, I say that these days the biggest three tools I have in my toolbox where I mostly live as a, as a spiritual care counselor is first to say, this sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, just without you know, any proper language, but just to acknowledge this sucks. And they relax and drop the language that sometimes they feel like they have to put on when the, the, um, the spiritual care counselor is in the room. Mm-hmm. But they acknowledge, yeah. Yes, it does. And then they tell me what really, really is going on and how they feel. The second is, of course, you feel that way. Mm -hmm. A lot of people do. Of course, you feel that way. That kind of validation can alleviate people of a lot of the guilt and fear and shame and judgment uh, or fear of others' judgment about some of the things that they feel. So validating and normalizing how they feel 
And the third is teaching their loved ones how to put the bedrolls up and down so that they can get <laughs> close to their loved one as they want to. And then how to put them back up when they leave. To model that it is okay to be close to your loved one. If it's bothering them, they'll, they'll let you know. But otherwise, to not let that sterile environment that we've put up Oftentimes people stand there in the corner not wanting to touch. I'm like, you're paying for this room. If you want to crawl up in that bed with your, you know, whoever this person is to you, you go right ahead. And if anybody complains, you have them come get the chaplain, and I'll put oh, the fear of God in them. <laughs> I've, I've, even, I've even stood vigil at a door in an in um, acute inpatient facility, hospice facility, when there was a couple who had been back and forth to MD Anderson as they were her cancer was back and multiple treatments and tests and it had been weeks and weeks and weeks and finally it was clear that she she was not going to be able to recover from this time. And so it had been months since they had had any time alone, having been back and forth to different hospitals. So they're in the ICU and it was very clear that they adored each other. But he had his hand woven through the bars of the hospital bed and contorted himself to try to reach over and hold her hand. And I finally, as part of my assessment, asked how long it had been since they'd been able to have, well, private time together. And I kind of waggled my eyebrows. And they kind of, he kind of turned beet red, and she said, way too long. Uh-huh. And I said, well, you know, these doors can't lock for safety reasons. But I have about, oh, two hours worth of paperwork to do. And if uh-huh. I sit about five feet down the hallway away from your door and it's closed, I can guarantee you nobody will get past the chaplain to come in and bother you. Just remember to come open the door at some point so I can get home to my family for supper. And I said, really? And I said, yeah. And um, and I might suggest keeping the bed rails up <laughs> just, you know, for safety's sake. And, yeah, it's, you know, talk about palliation. Sometimes helping people find ways to connect and to help them get past some of the barriers we put up in our minds about wow. things that, yeah. You can be close mm-hmm. is the most powerful thing we can do. You're a rascal, yeah. Carla Cheatham. I don't care what they say. <laughs> you do what it takes. Had, but you're done. <laughs> we had some not disturb signs in oh. my hospital. You had a hat on the doorknob or a tie or something? Yeah, we, we would actually employ, ask the nurses to use a Hoya lift to move the patient over so their loved one could get into bed next to them. Oh. Bam. Wow. Yeah. That's so, what we want. This yeah, is a layman's question, too. You hear so many labels about people in your line of work. What's the difference between a pastoral care counselor, a chaplain, a spiritual care coordinator? Are these all labels for the same kind of professional, or are they really differences? Are there differences? Um, well, it depends. Uh, most large hospitals now would love to have what are called board-certified chaplains, people mm-hmm. that have have a graduate degree in, in, in theology uh, that have done minimum of 1,600 hours of clinical supervised education, clinical pastoral CPE, uh, and then uh, have to be endorsed by a religious or endorsing body, uh, whether it be through ordination or, uh, or uh, endorsement for healthcare chaplaincy. And then you go in front of a committee for to be certified where you do a lot of paperwork and a lot of work. And then above and beyond that, there are specialty certifications uh, in palliative care. So that's the standard. There are other associations who are offering board certification that aren't as uh, strenuous and as robust 
as some organizations. Uh, there are associations that you pay, you know, 100 bucks and you get a chaplain card. Oh. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, and some faith-specific hospitals might have, uh, you know, clergy of their own assigned to, um, to be with patients and families, but hopefully they're more um, uh, multi-faith faith than just a particular faith. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And yeah. that's for, so that's the board certification where the true term chaplaincy exists, a board certified chaplain. Mm-hmm. There are others, though, who perhaps have been in the field for 25 years, did not have mm-hmm. access to clinical pastoral education um, or where they went to university, to seminary, they didn't have access to it, or it's not where they thought they were headed. They thought they were headed into parish ministry, working with the faith community, for instance, yeah. and, then, and then found themselves working in healthcare instead. Mm-hmm. But they have not gotten fully board certified. So, um, And the term chaplain over the years, we, we humans put together baggage with language, <laughs> and the word chaplain over time collected some baggage by many people as being seen as decidedly Christian. When there are chaplains who are Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, Baha'i, Sikh, uh, every different uh, flavor of Christianity that you can imagine in Catholicism, there are pagan chaplains and Wiccan chaplains. There are even uh, agnostic and humanist and atheist chaplains. Mm And so we run the gamut. So, but, but because of the fear, the baggage of that term collected, there were many people who would not see the chaplain because they feared a certain stereotype and mm-hmm. they feared judgment and proselytizing. And so in order to help alleviate some of that fear, we started trying to talk more about we're not about religion. We're about your spiritual support. How's your spirit holding up and what does that mm-hmm. mean to you? So we, we've been playing around with different language. Um, mm-hmm. In the previous days, in a lot of the faith-based hospitals, perhaps, uh, for instance, because so many of the hospitals began as faith-based institutions, like the Sisters of Mercy and the Franciscans, et cetera, um, as they were supported by persons of faith and faith communities and, and religions, religious groups. So they would talk about it as pastoral counseling. But as we've expanded, and as Katrina was talking earlier about the rise of persons who consider themselves spiritual rather than religious, and those who consider themselves neither spiritual nor religious, but they still have existential questions, we try to make available rabbis and imams and priests and clergy of all uh, types. We try to coordinate connection with them. But at the end of the day, ideally, a clinically trained healthcare chaplain um, as, or as we're calling them now, spiritual care providers, spiritual care counselors. You may even hear the term spiritual care coordinator. It all is really trying to say we're there to help you access your beliefs and find support and to connect you with your clergy if you do have some or want connection with your clergy from a particular religious group. So all saying essentially the same thing in different ways, but at the end of the day, it's, we're wanting to show up for people and offer them that support. That's great. So just as you said, a good spiritual care coordinator or provider would be able to determine when a patient does want to see their particular religious leader. What advice would you have for the rest of the team as an indicator of you really need to talk to a spiritual care 
person. Like when it gets above what a, a nurse or a doctor or a pharmacist can provide, beyond what Katrina described as the basic skills we should all have as transdisciplinary providers. What are some flags to say, I really think we need to bring in the rest of the team here? Um, well, it used to I be as a hospice. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. It used to be as a hospice chaplain. As soon as someone cried, they would call, or they would call for me. And when I would ask, so what is it that they're needing? Well, they're crying. Okay. And are there words to those tears? No, 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 they're just crying. We need you to come. And so it took some, some time to educate them that, that tears may just be a sign of them expressing what they need to express. And I certainly am not averse to coming to see them, but we started letting people know that if they were listening just specifically for religious language or spiritual language about God or a deity or something along those or, or heaven or hell or forgiveness, if they were listening for those decidedly spiritual and religious terms, they might be missing it. Anytime people are express, expressing, again, those questions of meaning, how do I make sense of this? How do I understand this? What should I do? How will I carry on? Will my kids remember me? How do I cope? As they're looking for any of those kinds of, any source of existential distress or angst mm -hmm. or yeah. suffering, um, that's when it's a really good time to bring in the spiritual care coordinator. Absolutely. Um, Trina, anything else? The, the, members of the, the members of the team might um, want to do, be presented with some standard spiritual distress forms. The, there are a whole bunch of tools out there that patients, and especially well, even clinicians, should look at to see what are the types of distress that people are having. But for me, the big thing is fear, that mm -hmm. people are scared to death of dying. Mm -hmm. And what, what is that fear about? Is it the actual dying process? Is it the fact that, you know, you're just, this loss is too much for you to leave your family? What is your fear? What is your anguish? What is your suffering, the disintegration of who you were and, and, and hopefully a, a, a chance or space to maybe mend that a little bit before the end? So I think, I I think a smart thing would be to give those forms to the team. That's a good idea. I would imagine that sometimes you have your hands full. I mean, I was raised Catholic, and boy, we are painted mm -hmm. a pretty graphic picture of what <laughs> hell looks like forever and ever and ever, and it's going to be really hot. So I can imagine yeah. somebody mm -hmm. being very fearful of roasting the eternal fires of hell forever. Yeah, we, we do yeah. come across that sometimes, yeah. And, and so we, we help them think through and talk through what they think about love and forgiveness and meaning. Uh, you know, you talk about the interdisciplinary and the trans transdisciplinary approach, and we're so grateful for that because in spiritual care, we speak of there being spiritual care generalists, which are all members of the team, mm -hmm. who we believe have an ethical and in some cases really even a regulatory responsibility to screen for spiritual distress mm -hmm. and then to respond and intervene in the moment as needed within appropriate bounds. And then to know when it's time to refer a spiritual care coordinator or spiritual care provider who will then come in as the spiritual care specialist to do a deeper assessment beyond the screening and then deeper interventions and plan of care. Now, to be clear, that's much more the model in the hospital setting and palliative care setting and community-based setting, but for hospice, the regs are much different. The, uh, there's to be a spiritual care or other counselor who is part of 
the interdisciplinary team that takes part in the comprehensive assessment to put together the plan of care within the first five days. So the standard in hospice is that a spiritual care uh, practitioner gets out there to see patients and families and assess within the first five days and that they be the one to introduce themselves to patients and families. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but and then to help be part of developing that plan of care. But we spend a lot of time in training other staff, and that's a lot of what we do in this, in the uh, it's definitely in the basic psychosocial and spiritual course in the program, is to help them find that sweet spot. We don't want them to abandon or neglect people's spiritual needs because they're uncomfortable and skittish about knowing how to tread that line and how to be present with that uh, topic for people, but we also don't want them to go to the other extreme and overstep those boundaries and become unintentionally, but religiously and spiritually abusive by bringing their own belief into that process. And Mm -hmm. even a bit opportunistic of taking advantage of someone being weak and scared and using it as an opportunity to present their own beliefs, well-meaning, well-intended, loving people, but who haven't been trained in how to hold that boundary will look for an opportunity to bring what they believe into that care relationship. And it happens all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. We help them learn how to hold that sweet spot without going in either direction of spiritual malpractice, how to Mm -hmm. not abandon or overstep. And it Mm -hmm. it can be a tricky needle to thread, but we spend a lot of time helping those that are scared get more comfortable and those that are way too comfortable having a little more awe and trembling about the way mm-hmm. they approach the ethical boundaries. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important. Well, what you, when you were speaking, it reminds me of Dame Cicely Saunders' definition of total pain. And certainly, yes. as a pharmacist, oh, and I'm all about the drugs, I have had to learn to say to a patient, well, you know, what's one thing I can do for you right now? And very often it has nothing to do with the physical discomfort. It's not a morphine moment. Mm-hmm. So I think your words are very true. Katrina, anything you want to add to what Carla just said? I, I did want to go back as a um, as a raised in the Catholic tradition, although I no longer practice that. There is I, I, I'm in the Boston area, which heavily, mm. very very heavily Catholic. The the we have we where I worked, we had priests who were sacramental because there was such a, a shortage of priests that in a hospital over a thousand beds. Uh, the, you know, someone would say, oh, I'd like to see a, are, would you like to uh, see one of our chaplains? Yes, I'd like a priest. And that was mm. the common refrain. And so mm-hmm. then I would walk in. And as it turned out, you know, I'd explain, no, we, you know, we have one priest for a thousand people. And we would talk. But the most lovely thing is that sacrament of the sick, which my uh, <laughs> Roman Catholic colleagues, sometimes referred to as the get-out-of-jail-free card, right, <laughs> at end of life, because it's absolution. You know, you, you get absolved of your sins, which can be really profound. And yeah. for me, it's when I'm with a family and the person receives sacrament of the sick and then the priest leaves, and then we talk, we pray, we just continue in that space, and it's like the air is back in the room especially for family members that, that are still very, very traditional. Um, it's, it's, it, the, 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 it's the bow on the package. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, there's very... something so comforting about those rituals 
And for those who do practice a spiritual path or religious tradition, and even those, again, let me be clear, those who are non-theistic, meaning they don't believe in a deity or follow a spiritual or religious path, we all have our own rituals. Hello and goodbye are rituals. So there are rituals that we practice for persons who are non-theistic, as a giving away ceremony or a goodbye ceremony. Mm -hmm. But but those rituals, those things that are familiar and give us a great sense of meaning and contact and reassurance, be so powerful. So, yeah, well said, Katrina. I was just thinking, we have have the Quran on um, CDs and for our Muslim patients, just to have that recitation happening in the room is just... It's like yeah. the warmest blanket in the world. Yeah. That, yeah. All those little, little tricks until the Quran Explorer is an app on iPhone that mm-hmm. I, a son of a yeah. patient helped me bookmark the surahs or the chapters that would be similar to, in Judeo-Christianity, the 23rd Psalm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I would hit those surahs, and, and a mom would, would chant, recite the Quran, and it was a beautiful experience in a way that I, as a non-Muslim and as a female, could bring the holy recitations to a patient. So yeah. those are some of the tools that we do like to have at our toolbox. So it sounds like you both subscribe to the get-her-done theory, no matter what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Good to know. Well, yeah. And I think, I think all of us in hospice and palliative care are kind of able to do that. We're all excellent at what we do individually, but I think it's our strengths and our overlap, and it's that transdisciplinary nature that makes us an awesome force. And I know that you all, you both of you teach that in your teachings in our program, and I am so delighted when I see the social worker, the chaplain, talk about, I remember one of our chaplain students saying something like, I know when I go to visit a patient, and it's obvious to me from my assessment, they're having physical discomfort. So it's hard to work on your soul when you're really uncomfortable and he would say I'm going to go get the nurse to see if she or he can give you a dose of your medication and I'll be back in an hour Uh, I think that's so important I assume you both do as well very much so to be able I'm a big um, big fan of double dating of disciplines going together to see patients to better hear and understand what what, what it is that the other does and as I grow from being around physicians nurses social workers, et cetera, I then can not overstep my bounds and go out of my scope and play, try to play nurse, physician, or social worker, but I can reaffirm the education and the languaging that I know that those other disciplines have used, mm-hmm. and I can reinforce it and support that and know better of what I'm looking for um, so that I went how to better know when to reach out and refer to them, and vice versa. They then get more comfortable at knowing when to reach out to me. It's a great, great experience. Yep. I think Katrina, you were starting to say. Go ahead. I would just say the um you know, the Mas- I use this a lot, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh there's a great uh revamping of that for hospice and palliative care that um the foundation in order to get to that apex of transcendence or self awareness is some pain and symptom management. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, in where I used to work, are if somebody was in physical pain crisis, we would not see them. I mean, we would wait for the team to come in and to, to see what was going on before walking in and, and <laughs> even trying to converse. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind yeah. of basic one-on-one. Yeah. And it's a constant case of triage because there are times when I've been called by a nurse at 2 o'clock in the morning to say, 
and to have her say, I've been doing continuous care in hospice in this patient's home for nine hours. They're wailing and moaning and thrashing, but not yep. responsive. And I've given them enough meds to knock out a horse. Mm-hmm. I think this pain is spiritual, not physical. Everything's been said that yep. we know of. It needs to be said. Everyone's been here that we know. We can't find anything. Can you please come? We think this pain might be spiritual. And so the nurse being willing to notice and see mm-hmm. and recognize and reach out to realize, and we, we know that when persons' emotional, mental, and spiritual suffering is tended to properly, they have um, fewer, fewer symptoms, their rating of their symptoms is less, their perception of their symptoms can be lowered, their need for medication can be lowered, their sense of calm and well-being and anxiety goes down. So mm-hmm. it, they both work hand in glove. We, um, I know you've talked quite a bit about team body and team soul, and I've actually chided mm-hmm. my patients, my, uh, the students, and said, go back to Lynn and tell her we're going to talk no, because we don't want to push that, push that dichotomy. We really want to talk about team whole person, because mm-hmm. that's what we do. And so it can be a useful way to see both, and yet I think we've got to pay attention to where the physical is impacting the spiritual and emotional and where the spiritual and emotional is impacting the physical and how we all work together. Absolutely. Well, that sounds like a lovely note to end on. Ladies, thank you so much, and happy (laughs) Spiritual Care Week to you and to all of our patients and the rest of our teams. I'm so grateful you took a half an hour to join us today. Uh, Again, this is uh, Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2019, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.com dot edu forward slash palliative. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Katrina, it's an honor. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you.